if we pick up the story then, Magella, if you tell me a bit about how you became involved with the campaigners in Brussels. I would think somewhere back about 1980, missionary groups in Africa decided to form a lobby group. And it seems to me that only a number of missionary groups bought into this. They were all based in Rome, which was a problem for me. I didn't know this for a long time. Because, for example, the medical missionaries of Mary didn't have a headhouse in Rome. Kiltegan priests didn't have a headhouse in Rome. But the Spiritans would have had a headhouse, and the SMA and the White Fathers. When I was given the task by my Nigerian province of OLA, I would talk to one religious community or another. Some would know about it and some wouldn't know about it. Nobody ever told me that not everybody had bought into it. That made it very difficult. There was a select number of missionary institutes that had committed themselves to this. And they were all in it through their generalates in Rome. And these generalates put money together to establish a lobby office in Brussels, a lobby office focused on the European Union. And the mandate, as I understood it at that time, was to identify businesses and trades and trade anything in Africa with a Western route that has a poor impact on Africa. And the idea, of course, was that the contact people would get in touch with Brussels, tell them about these situations, that the office in Brussels would go across. So that is why it's called the Africa, Europe, Faith and Justice Network. It really didn't enter into the consciousness of many groups, I think, until maybe 1990. And it was in 1990 that the OLAs began to talk about it. That's my own institute. And it began to percolate through our different provinces. So we were having a provincial chapter in Nigeria in 1990. And one of the tasks that chapter had been directed to do from our generalate was to find a contact person for the Africa, Europe, Faith and Justice Network in Nigeria, as well as a similar contact person in any of the other countries where OLA worked. So I was chosen at that chapter to be the contact person with really no brief whatsoever or no information. I was also then to animate thinking on justice issues generally. So from 1991-92, I would occasionally give talks to those sisters in formation during their seminars, and I would be addressing the issues of Catholic social teaching of which I was learning for the first time as well. So I would be a step ahead of those that I was teaching. And I hadn't any notion of how you went about AEFGN, because I don't think we ever got any literature on it. But I disliked having a mandate and not doing something about it. So I then began to look at issues in Nigeria that might be categorised in that way. And I used the newspapers. I found maybe about four or five. There was one where there was a lot of rubber plantations. And rubber plantations displaced local communities living in them. Then there was one about selling land belonging to villagers to a big game reserve. Now, the rubber was related to Europe. And also the game reserve, I think the development of it was going to be getting European funding. 
And then there was somewhere else a big dam that was being built to displace communities. So I was coming across a lot about communities impacted to some degree by Western trade or Western business. I used to cut them out of the paper and I had bundles. And then suddenly I looked at my bundles one day and the one about the Ogoni people in the Niger Delta was just growing. So I said, any kind of sensible person trying to figure out what to do about these issues would start with the one that was the most obvious at that time. From my six bundles, I took the biggest bundle and I looked at it and said, that must be the one where I could learn because the fact was the Ogoni people, through the movement for the survival of the Ogoni people, were already challenging their situation and the media was carrying plentiful reports about it. So for somebody who had never done anything like this before, I said, that's where I go to learn. But that was a very big step because I looked at it, at the distance between Lagos and Agone, and it was 500 kilometres. But I discovered every issue that I had looked at were in very remote places. So that was a big problem for me if I was to carry on my mandate. And because there was no direction or no help, one didn't know how to deal with that. There never was talk about any budget for this work either. So I'm not really sure what I was... I wasn't a bit sure what I was supposed to do, but I was willing to learn, and I decided to take the Agoni issue as the one in which I would learn everything about activism and campaigning. It had the elements, Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, very big British-Dutch company, very European-based, Hori, its shareholders, its investors, all the rest of it. It was working on land in Ogoni. It wasn't working offshore. There was a group of people making great challenges to it already in place. So they were on the way to, to challenging their own situation. But where to start with the place that was 500 kilometres away? I saw the name Ken Sarawiwa coming up again and again and again in the media material. And I also knew about him because i come across a lovely book of short stories called A Forest of Flowers. And I just loved the short stories in it. And I had even bought the book as a gift two or three times for other people. I would also have been aware that another book that he'd written was The Prisoner of Jebs, which I don't think I've ever seen again, but I was aware of that. And because I had done a one-year course in Uganda, at Institute of African Studies and Catechetics, we'd done a wonderful course in anthropology under quite a famous anthropologist, White Father Shorter, Aylward Shorter. And in that course, he had done a section on African literature. So that's what opened my eyes to African literature. So I became quite sensitised to it when I came back to Nigeria. Now, that had been in 1972, and this was 1992 at this stage. I talked to my friend, Lynn Chakura, who's now deceased. She was a lecturer in the University of Lagos, one of my colleagues, in literature. So I felt she might know who Ken Sarawiwa was as an author. So one day I took up the courage, I was down visiting her house on campus, and I said, would you know? Oh, she said, yes, I have his card in my bag. So she took out the card, and I discovered that there was a Lagos office just not too far, 15 minutes from where I lived, as well as a Port Harcourt office. So I kind of said, would you ever do me a favour if I'm going to move at all? 
whichever ring the number. And, you know, telephone lines in Lagos were very often out of sync. So she did, and she began to talk to him. And I just kept mouthing at her, asking, can we come and see him now? <laughs> because, you know, he had two offices, evidently. So he could be gone to the airport in the next quarter of an hour and I'd have missed my chance and I don't think I would have ever come back to it again. She knew him very well because they're in the Association of Nigerian Authors. She was a poet and a writer as well. She just said to him, can we come down? And he said yes, because even in Nigerian culture it's so important that somebody introduces you and kind of vouches for your credibility. I went down to the office and I let them chit-chat, chit-chat, chit-chat. He was probably eyeing me out of the corner of his eye because he paid very little attention to me at all because here were the two literary people talking about past times in the association. And then she introduced me to him and I explained about the Africa-Europe Faith and Justice Network. I was following my mandate and he had a fax machine in the office and he said, well, we're having a prayer vigil on the 13th of March, I think it must have been. I'll fax them a notice about it. So he actually faxed the information about the prayer vigil. And I was in from then. So if you start then, Magella, would you just tell me what your first impression of Ken, what was Ken like? You know, I'm not very good at noting that as the first thing. I kind of very much kind of respect people as they are. I noticed that as the same when I went to Nigeria first. I didn't take much notice of anything being terribly different, you know. But, like, afterwards I realised he was probably less than five feet tall. But he had a normal-sized head and he was sitting behind a desk. So his shortness of stature wasn't from his shoulders up. It was in the rest of his body, I think. I think he had glasses. And the office itself was like, if you think of a sitting room that leads out onto the street, the first half of it is divided off so he would have had two people working in the outer office and then you walked in a little door to an inner office and that's where he was but because he came to that office well he came frequently but didn't stay very long in it very neat forever never never he just was very neat that time there was really no computer I think he had a laptop but I wouldn't have known a thing about a computer but he had a fax machine, and I had never actually seen a fax machine either. So he had the telephone, the fax machine, and the laptop. And I have written about that, that they were his instruments of campaign work. You really didn't need much paper. Now, of course, the two people out in the front office were looking after his business was related to that office as well as publishing and that. So there was a lot happening out in the outer office. He'd been... You know, an administrator, he'd been in many positions in government and all along, so he was a very trained person. He was quite wealthy as well, Magellan. Oh, yes, he was, in that kind of river state way. The river state is made up of people who live along the coast. So there were the first people, the colonisers and the big trading companies met, and trade was in their blood, you know. So he explains that in his book, In a Month and a Day, he invested in lots. He like was a little businessman, palm oil, soap, grocery type things. And there evidently was a lot of money to be made. He would have saved every penny. There was nothing extravagant about him. And his money was saved 
for his children to go to very excellent schools in England. That seemed to be the goal. And he also says in that set of extracts that all he wanted was financial security and not to be dependent on anybody and to arrive at that security by very honest means so that he could look anybody in the eye. And that was quite extraordinary. And like maybe for a year, I would about a quarter believe that. And, you know, I would have taken my time because I was meeting somebody. So somehow his credibility had to come through to me. It wasn't ready-made at all. So I would have been very cautious watching how he was known, what he was at. So I reckon he had quite a bit of property. And he says about that his mother always told him, invest in property, invest in property, invest in property. They were all business people. So they don't have social welfare. They're nothing like that. So you learn to have savvy. And then if you have intelligence and savvy, it goes. But extraordinary for me that not one of his businesses was linked to Shell that was parading in front of him, behind him, beside him, in that area. Like their big complex in the oil industry was in Port Harcourt, where he was. And he just never, never seemed to have taken any business from them. But I wouldn't have known that. All of that would have evolved maybe over a year, kept reading, kept looking. Yeah, you'd, because Nigeria, whether we like it or not, has a most extraordinary level of corruption. And the corruption would be very linked to Western business. So, of course, I was watching out for that. Where was the, where was the flow? So, in relation to financial security, he says he made... And he did. He took his children to England when they were very small with their mother. And he sent them to the... Be- his son was in Eton. They were all at very good schools. So, that was where his wealth... But there was no extravagance. He just didn't... He wore the same clothes day in, day out. He was totally focused in his writing, in what he was doing. I don't think wealth bothered him a whole lot, other than it enabled him to do what he wanted. So when you met him first, he was still writing and that was part of his life? I would, no, I would think he wasn't writing at that stage. And again, I would have gone back to look what had happened there. So I think 89, 1989 was his last productive year as a writer. And he explains, but I can't quite find it, but it's in one of the books, that this kind of a a call to serve the Ogoni people became very formalised and visible in 1989. And it was like making a decision, from now on, I have enough money to provide for my children and my home Everything else belonging to me is going to the Ogoni people. But he explained to me as well that there is in Ogoni culture this special call that people get. And it has its own name and its own content. Probably like what we call a saint or a, you know, somebody like Padraig Pierce, these people who, but it's accommodated in the culture. They recognise it. And that's probably what helps people who go this way that the people recognise it as well and trust it. So I found that quite extraordinary that he describes that somewhere. And he gave me that information himself, and I just sat and listened and didn't say very much. So it was 1989 was his last big writing. And the other material he wrote was in relation to the campaign. 
and in 8990 he was writing the Ogoni Bill of Rights, which is quite a serious document and which I have paraphrased into a big chart. And he addresses the political issues, the social issues, the economic issues and the environmental issues. Twenty years later almost, I begin to understand that what I responded to there was the environmental issue. The political issue was to try to get autonomy within the Federation for Ogoni because he felt that it was always going to be at the very bottom of the pile like other ethnic minorities. And because it had such a wealth of oil money going out of the area, that surely they'd have a right to claim state recognition. There are about 36 states in Nigeria, and some of them would be quite small in population. So that was his political goal, which I understood nothing about, really. So I realised that in that whole, I was taking on the multinational shell because its impact was very serious in Ogoni. So even though I knew the Ogoni Bill of Rights, and I have showed it many places since, I now can say that I responded to the environmental objectives of the Ogoni Bill of Rights, because it fitted in with my mandate to look at Western business.